This is Denmark Real. I am Amar Ahmed. With me today is Stefan Leo. Stefan is the founder of the School of Positive Psychology, the co-founder of Thrive Psychology Clinic, the co-founder of Novo Census. Stefan, you are a positive psychologist, a psychotherapist, a clinical hypnotherapist, a positive psychology coach, working with traumas, fear, phobia, strength, resilience, and mindset. You are also the founder and host of the podcast, Getting Naked with Happiness. Welcome to you, Stefan. Hello, hello, Emma. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me to be here. It's my honor to have you here. St Stefan, I, I read once that the single mystery to modern man is himself. So the single mystery to modern man is himself, that even when he wants to feel his body, he cannot. So all these signals that we have from our body, I think it is difficult for the, for the ordinary person to understand himself, especially with all the noise that is around us. How can we distinguish between the ego, the true feeling, the inner voice, the voices from our parents or, or everything we have learned. How can we distinguish between all these things? I think that's a, a great question that you asked and also a very big question. There's like so many layers to it. Well, if I could break the question into two parts, the first part is about how could we differentiate our real voice with all the external voices that we have, all right? And the second part is more of like, how do we really establish our own identity? I think if let's say I can take on this question, or maybe one not like this, I take on this question in a whole based on identity. Uh, a big part about our human existence comes with the form of understanding who we are and also our purpose in our life. But yet at the same time that many people or many people have spent their entire lifetime or maybe many years of their lifetime to try to find out what uh, their purpose or what is our real core identity. I think these are very great questions because I think many human beings truck along their life and based on the crisis that they have survived or the hardships that they have went through, they seem to find a purpose underlying, a line, underlying purpose in their suffering. But that doesn't really mean that they, this is their identity. So this is a very big question. What I will recommend or what I will seems to suggest do is that maybe ask questions that is pointed towards more of their future that what would they want to do for themselves or what would they want to do for the world? That would be a great way to start from the place of finding meaning. Because I think that meaning, it plays, meaning is something that is also very, mm, uh, not very tangible, but if they can find out what they are good at in terms of their strengths, if they find out what they are good at in terms of their passion and their talent, that will help them to shape their identity in terms and by shaping their identity will play, will also shape their roles they want to play in society. And that will be a great indicator to craft their lives and to find out what is their, their real voice. I don't know whether I answered that to your question, but please feel free to build on it. Okay. Yes, I, I understand. 
understand that. I, I think that is also a, a great uh, answer uh, because fe feeling feeling being lost, uh, feeling that we don't know what to do, uh, especially in, in the age of 20s, in the 20s, really difficult time to figure out and to navigate, um, to find to find meaning because doing the rep repetitive work sometimes doesn't give us, give us satisfaction and, and deeper meaning. So you, you, you think that we, we should try to look, look outside of ourselves and see if we can find meaning in the world in general, find a bigger, a bigger goal for ourselves? Well, what I would suggest is more like a approach you know, and there are people who are not only in their 20s, there are people in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, or 70s, have no idea what is their meaning either. So I would say that if you want to do an age comparison, it's okay to not to find any meaning at the age of 20 or 30s or 40s or whichever. But what I try to suggest here is that sometimes the pursuit of meaning could be very blinding because they are so attached to the expectation or the outcome of finding a meaning and they become anxious about it. So in the process of finding, they lose themselves and they become more confused and they may get even disappointed or sad or even frustrated. So I would suggest that maybe instead of just being, trying to find meaning, they can pay attention to what they're good at. Maybe their talents or their strengths. And these are great psychological resource that they should hone on. And when they build onto these resources, when the meaning arrives, they are ready for it. I hope that answers to some part of the yes. question. Yes, it does. It does. Can we talk about um, our psyche, how, how it is affected by our diet? Our diet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, of, as everybody is aware that how our, the way we think affects how the way we feel and how the way we feel affects the way we act. And not only that, in terms of think, feel and act, we also need to pay attention to our environment. And environment includes other people, the external world that we live in, the, society, the roles we play in society, and including the quality of the food and the sleep that we get. And we talk about our psyche, how does food affect us? Well, there's research, of course, pointing that if a person pay attention to his or her intake of food, right, they will have a, there's a correlation between what they consume and versus, uh, with how they feel and how the way they think. Of course, needless to say that it also comes with other uh, parts of uh, health that involves exercise. So our food, our diet plays a very big role is because that if you, we, of course, at the end of the day, our brain needs glucose, glucose to, to process information and we need that intake of glucose through food and sugar so that we can continue to think. But if you look at the overall well-being, because psyche is such a broad word, but if I can take the opportunity to change it to pay attention to our well-being. If a person who wants to have a good well-being, a very important pillar would be paying attention to the food they consume and also the quality of sleep they have. And also, of course, the, the, the quality of social network and the work they do and many other things. So to answer your question, yes, definitely food is a big thing. 
Great. So the next. If I could just, yeah. If I could just add one part, yes. uh, it may may be relevant or not relevant, but this is something for you to know. There are many people out there. They have they are taking vitamins or they are taking minerals for health reasons. So research has shown that if a person there's a difference if a if a person is taking it when they are happy versus that they are always upset and unhappy. There is an impact on how the way they could really absorb these nutrients. So in the research of psychoneuroimmunology, I think it's a quite a mouthful. But if you look at the word psycho, it means the way we think and the way we feel. Neuro means our brain, our central nervous system. And immunology means our immune system. Very valid for COVID-19 situation right now. So when we found that every time when we take uh, a mineral, it goes into our bloodstream and our digestive systems, and all the minerals will travel through it. And we have receptors from ourselves to receive these minerals. And there are thousands of receptors that we have, or even more than tens of thousands of it. And they, and we found, and they found that when a person is much more optimistic and happier, and they are a resilient person, they, are, they have more receptors to receive the minerals and the nutrients comparing to a person who is down or bitter or maybe clinical or ment uh, mentally challenged, I would say, or mentally ill. Then you will find that there are lesser receptors being on the blood cells to take in this peptides or these minerals. So therefore, there's a great correlation between our psyche and our food intake. So it, it goes under the psychosomatics. So our thoughts is affecting our physics, our body. Yes, and, it does. And, and if we are afraid of something, that could shut down the, 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 the immune system in, in a way, right? Yeah, they will impair the immune system. As what you said right on, Ama, is that when the brain, when we are experiencing fear, when we are experiencing pain, the brain actually shrinks. And once it shrinks, it also affects you know, the parasystematic, uh, of course, we are two parts of our body, and it affects every part of the body, the organs, our digestive system, our metabolism to process these nutrients and uh, the good stuff. So you are absolutely right on this. Thank you. The, the dreams and the importance, the importance of dreaming Sorry, come again? The, the dreams and the importance of dreaming. Okay, so you're asking what is the, what is the importance of dreaming? Yes. Okay. Um, we, like for thousands of years, we have gathered around to find meaning in our lives and we go into deeper conversations like what is the what is, how could we analyze our relationships? How could we analyze our lives? How could we analyze the world? So we tend to have these questions all the time and we have lots of questions that is in, have taking place in our mind. And we also know that in psychology or many different parts of psychology, we have two big parts. One is the conscious mind and the other part is the unconscious mind. Um, and of course, if you use an iceberg analogy, we have the iceberg on top and then the rest of the iceberg below the water. And the below the water will represent the unconscious mind. 
and on top of the iceberg would be known as the conscious mind. So consciously, we communicate through words. We communicate through like languages, um, objects, and mathematics and science. We have so many ways of communication. And how do we communicate unconsciously? And a big part of unconscious communication is related to sound, into music, into colors. Another big part of unconscious communication is our dreams. So when we go to sleep at night, we, we will process these things that we have, these encounters we have experienced in the day through our stimulus response. And then at the same time that our brain work like a computer and they'll try to compartmentalize the things that we go through. So if you have watched the cartoon in, Inside Out, you will definitely know the case. We try to process memories, we put them into short-term memories or long-term memories as if that the mind is going through a defect. So when we dream, it seems that to suggest that these dreams may be either literal or symbolic dreams playing out in our minds. And these dreams are simply echoes of what we are experiencing in the day. But of course, according to dream analysts or dream therapists, there may be different reasons why we dream. But a great indicator is that what are dreams? Dreams are simply a series of emotions or heightened emotions flowing through our unconscious and unconscious states of mind. And it gives us great information for us to pay attention to. Because in the daily waking lives, we have uh, different personas. We have roles to play in society like a brother, like a husband, like a mother or a, or a girlfriend or a wife. We have many different roles to play, which means that our ego is taking on these roles to survive in society, to act out in a certain manner, paying attention to norms and cultures. But at the end of the day, when we sleep, our ego doesn't function anymore. It goes into rest. And that is where our unconscious mind comes out and communicates our deepest desire, our darkest secrets, also our, our real intent the, in, the, in the most, maybe it could be fantasies, it could be, it could be things that we don't really like. It will come out to us and be manifested into dreams. So to, in a nutshell, dreams are part of unconscious communication. Very important. Yeah, because I, I read once that, that it's, it's really not good if a person doesn't dream. Well, maybe well, everybody dreams at least 7 to 14 dreams a night, but whether do, have they, do they have the ability to recall their dreams is, another, is another, another way of looking at it. Because not everybody have the ability to recall it. Okay. So that doesn't mean that the person has no dream. Um, everybody dreams. But because when we enter the unconscious state when we are sleeping, after we sleep, we go through different sleep cycle, like stage one, two, three, four. Uh, we have undo, which is called the, uh, the REM state and the non-REM state. And the most vivid dreams happen in stage three, I think. Uh, yeah, and then they go to stage four, whereby they have the deepest sleep ever. So where this, whereby their body goes to rest. But the challenge is that when they wake up, they, when they wake up, they go through this sleep cycle. Very often that if they do not recall their dreams, because they experience like a phenomenon known as amnesia, amnesia happens sometimes when you go into a conscious state and then you go to the unconscious state, or either that when you're from an unconscious state, you go to the conscious state. Yeah, so amnesia will happen. So many people who don't recall their dreams, they're experiencing a phenomenon which is very healthy, known as amnesia. So it's okay for them not to remember their dreams. 
Okay, so it, it, it's more about so it's more about the remembering of the dream. So some, some people cannot remember the dream and it's maybe the connection between the unconscious and conscious mind. Yeah. Okay. Not maybe not yet. So for those who have not have no ability to recall their dreams, simply is to suggest that they can improve not say improve they, if they are really interested. There are many ways for them to uh, take on exercises like write a dream journal or do exercises for them to expand their connections between the dream state and the waking state. And then most likely they are able to progress to recall some dreams when they wake up. But it takes time to build. It may be like one week or a few days for some people. And some people when they experienced, for example, clinical hypnotherapy, they reported that they have no dreams prior. But after a session, they start to, they start to dream a lot more. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It is. Yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on helicopter parenting? Helicopter parenting. Yes. <laughs> well, helicopter parenting, as you be aware that we are aware that it's a form of parenting based from fear and anxiety and of course it is a very unhealthy way of parenting and of course for those people who might not be aware is that you can imagine a helicopter flying in the sky and then the child in front of them and if the child is is falling off the helicopter will comes in and rescue the child and every time when the child does is about to do is about to experience something that might be a heightened uh, sensation. It could be fear, or, but more so of a dang possible danger zone. Then the helicopter will comes in. Well, helicopter parenting comes from the place of fear because they have this um, instinct to mother or father their, cho their children, thinking that if they don't do so, a lot of harm will come in. But of course, when you do helicopter parenting, it comes from the place of care and love. They have the responsibility of a being, the responsibility of a caring parent or a caregiver. And, but the challenge is that too much of helicopter parenting also means that they are robbing the autonomy away from the child and not allowing the child to process his or own experiences of how they, they, they relate to the world. And I would say that many times helicopter parenting is also caused by parents who think that they, may, they want to be a good parent. So in a way to show that they are a good parent, they, they then helicopter parent their kids. Yeah, and that's my thoughts. There are so many ways to think about parenting. Of course, the opposite of helicopter parenting would be authoritative parenting. There will be negotiation parenting. So th these are the ways whereby you can, they're very healthy ways of parenting. And I think these resources are available um, on a lot of places online and a lot of books, they talk about this. Yeah. Because I'm concerned also about, about when one day I'm, I'm becoming a father and a parent. Uh, how to approach my kids and and also to share with my audience because parenting is such a sensitive uh, subject yeah it is yeah. Um, it's a big topic all around the world and in 
in Asia, we have this, another type of helicopter parenting is called filial piety parenting, which means that in a very collectivistic society in Asia, they, they are parents who bring out their children through love and also through expectations and they will teach them Confucianistic values of, you know, uh, in a hierarchical manner that um, you must always respect the elders due to the culture and you should be focused on collectivistic thinking over individualistic thinking and you should be focused on the family unit rather than you or I. So the challenge of that is that many, this, many of these children, when they grow up, they are being denied of making decisions for themselves. For example, in the olden days or even the current times, especially, the parents get to decide major decisions that the children have to make. For example, the schools they enter, and when they grow up in the school times, what type of tertiary schools they enter, like what choice of studies they should study in their bachelor degrees or undergrad degrees, and what sort of work or career they should pursue. And this is also a form of helicopter parenting because they, the parents think that they know the best. And sometimes when the child wants to do, for example, pursue a creative arts, but the father or the parents would, may think that, or tell the child that maybe you shouldn't pursue that. You should pursue being an engineer or being an accountant or being a doctor. So this is also a form of fixed mindset in helicopter parenting. Yeah, so parenting really affects us in many different ways. So I'm very glad that Ama, when you become a father next time, I know that you will not be like that. <laughs> <laughs> I I hope not. I hope not. I will try to yeah. do my best to, to learn and, and be open for new ideas. Yes. So what are what are the effects of of uh, the daily habits and routines? on our on our uh, our mental health such like sleep also sleep and routines are you ask just to clarify your question are you asking that what are the what are some what are the what are some of the impacts of daily habits for daily habits and mental health yes uh, are you asking that what sort of daily habits? So we are just talking about what are the impacts, right? At this point. Yeah, because the importance also of, 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 of habits and routines in our life. Okay. Well, we all know that having a habit or positive habit is good. Having a bad habit is not so good, right? And we form habits all the time, whether is it sleeping, is it eating or exercising or even communicating with your peers or your loved ones or, your, or people that you work with. It could be a part of a habit also. So it really depends. Uh, the way I think is having a good well-being starts, stems from having a good habit. So for example, if a person um, like starting the day right, sets a, a, a very sets the day in a nice way so like for example that we all wake up we brush our teeth and that is a good habit 
Yeah. And if you can brush our teeth every day, could we do something else every day when we start with, for example, some people will do exercising, some people will take a cold shower, some people will make their beds, or some, some people will start with a gratitude exercise, or some of them will do meditation, or many other, many other things. So a good habit is a great ankle to start the day. But some people may argue that they do not have enough time because when they start, the day is quite packed. Well, we can always slot these activities at the end of the day because before you, especially before when a person sleeps, if they could do, let's say, a gratitude uh, exercise by stating down what they are grateful for, or they can do a true three blessings exercise that think of three things that they are grateful for, right? For example, and they, they will carry these narratives to the next day when they wake. Yeah. So I think these are the small little hacks and habits that we can imbue to create a much more better or much more uh, uh, positive well-being. And of course, habits is only called a habit when you do it every single day. And it takes 21 days to build a habit because after 21 days, our mind is rewired as many of us is aware. And this association is built time after time. And of course, um, many forms of habits will have a big impact on us. So over to you, Amma, what sort of habits do you do each day that puts you on a positive well-being track? I, I start my day by making my bed. Uh, this is the first thing. And I try to build those habits, like making the bed, making some breakfast, um, f breathing exercise. I took the Wim Hof breathing method and I made it to a challenge for 30 days. And those habits, they keep me, keep me calm that I, I have done what I have to do, especially in the morning. Uh, before going to bed, I try to be grateful for the things I, I have and to remind myself what, what do I have around me. And doing that, I realize what I have. I have a lot of things. I have my family is healthy and I live in Denmark. I have a roof over my head. All of these things are really important for me to, to remind myself. Because with all the noise that is around us, we forget what we have. We forget the things that are important to us. Excellent. You see, you have a great list of positive habits. Yeah, and thank they are you, all very important. Thank no, you, thanks for sharing. Thank you. What are, um, why is it called positive psychology? Why is it called positive psychology and why is it not called negative psychology? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Okay, well, positive psychology is an emerging field that is backed by evidence and research. It's simply to suggest that the word psychology is concerning how the way we behave and the way we think and the way we feel. And the word positive psychology is simply focused on the positive side of human nature so that we can study them and we can research them and we can continue to build these resources so that we can focus on building a flourishing life. Well, if we look at the word positive, it seems to de it seems to cause confusion to many people. First, many people will think that the word positive seems to suggest that we must be happy, we must be cheerful all the time, but it is not the case. For 
many years, many, many years since 200,000 years ago, our ancestors till today, we have been very immersed with this mindset called the negative, negativity bias. We are being hardwired to pay attention to negative things in our lives so that we can increase our odds of survival and say that, of course, we have you know, predators in the, in the olden times chasing after us, like a saber tooth or a lion or sword. We need to outrun, outlive and out-survive because we need to pass our genes down, right? So in evolution, we have this negativity bias. But 200,000 years later till today, like 2020, do we have these predators? No, we don't have these predators, but we still think that we have them in our heads. So we, so we need to, so what happens is that when we go to our workplaces, we go to societies, we go to school, we've been trained to specialize in our negativity bias. So what we do, we do problem solving, we do analysis, we do troubleshooting. Before a problem arises, we will start to think of what are the possible problems that will arise. And, and this is why we become so negatively focused. So at the end of the day, are we focused on our human survival or are we focused on our human well-being and flourishment? And it seems to suggest that we are preoccupied in this negative state. So in psychology, as we all know, psychology work with dealing with problems, analyzing problems, and find out why they happen. But at the end of the day, when the treatment goes in, we try to bring these people back to the normal state, which is a neutral state, so that they become normal again. But are they really happy or happier? Maybe they are happier because they have lesser problems, but it seems to suggest that they are not as they are not as focused as they it would be better for us to move them out into the scale of well-being development. So positive psychology simply to, is to work on the positive side of human being so that we can focus on, on developing our talents to create more meaningful relationships so that we have a more purposeful life. So in return, our societies, our children, our community, our countries, or the world in general will be more collaborative, will be more in sync so that we can focus on being positive because we trust and we build a uh, uh, inclusive community together. So that is the basis of the purpose of positive psychology. Because our, our negative feelings are, are as important, right? Because the word negative sounds negative. <laughs> so negative feelings sounds negative. And what are your thoughts about that? Well, not to be confused um, by the word positive psychology, positive psychology works a lot with the positivity of negative emotions, which means that we need both positive and negative emotions. Negative emotions are important for our survival. For example, when a person feels anger, it seems to suggest that maybe there is a sense of injustice that their moral code has been violated. They need to stand up for their right truth, and, and to learn how to embrace life and challenges with more courage. And if a person feels sad or depressed, it seems to suggest that they may have invested their resources at the wrong place or the wrong person and the wrong relationship. That's why that they feel experience sadness so that these emotions will allow them to have a 
self-check to know whether they should continue or maybe it can use it as an emotional signal for them to change route in their lives. So negative emotions are as important as positive emotions. We need both sets of positive emotions and negative emotions. If I can give you a metaphor, it's like riding a bicycle. And I know that in Denmark, many people ride bicycle, right? So <laughs> on the bicycle, there are two pedals. And the pedal is, one pedal means negative emotions. The the other pedal means positive emotions. And if a person is heavily immersed in negativity all the time, like fully fearful, fully anxious, and fully paranoid, the bicycle cannot work because once the person gets on, the person will fall down again. The person tries to get out again, they will fall down again. But if a person is too positive all the time, they will also fall down because it is over optimistic. So what we really need to move forward in life is like riding a bicycle. We need both negative and positive emotions all the time. So when we, when we go forward, we are building resilience and also building growth. And that is why we need both emotions. Great metaphor. Great metaphor, actually. Yeah, to keep balance between everything. Um, is, is it also of that important to have the different personalities to work together? Because there is those who are really, really open and those extrovert and introvert and, and the group dynamic, how they work together. Because being totally optimistic, wanting to go really, really far and fast can, can crush the person if he's too optimistic. And are you asking that do we need different types of personalities to work together within a person? Mostly, mostly different personalities to work together. It's like the balance between the negative and positive in oneself could be zoomed out and seen from a, a group dynamic. So more different people have different personalities and therefore they can work together. Oh, you're talking about in a group setting. I, I, I took the, the, the metaphor from, from, from within ourselves, the balance between the positive and the negative, and extended it to a group where different personalities play, play, play the role of, of the optimistic person and the less optimistic person, they balance themselves out. Okay, so... Um... Uh, if we are referring to the notion of we have different parts within ourselves and the, maybe there's one part, uh, one persona is uh, much more optimistic and one persona is much more uh, neurotic, uh, much more anxious. Um, how do we balance out these parts within ourselves in, in this setting? Are you asking that just to clarify a question? That question is also really good. <laughs> so let's go, let's go with that for now. Oh no, because I, when you say group dynamics, are you talking about, um, I apologize, I didn't really understand because I just ran uh, training in clinical hypnotherapy. So in the clinical hypnotherapy, we talk a lot about parts. We have different parts within ourselves and we have different uh, personas between ourselves. So when you hear, so I get confused with that. Okay, so to answer this, um, if this is your question, uh, <laughs> is that they, they will be always, different parts play different roles in their lives. And 
we form these parts also known as archetypes. And these archetypes play a role, a different role in our lives to function. So it could be at the front of our workplace, or it could be a front of a, being a leader, or it could be at the front of being a parent or a, a child. So there are many different roles we play. To, how do we balance them out? I think the most important part is having their values because at the end of the day, they may have different personalities, but they have quite similar values. But of course, there are some, may, they may have disagreement with each other. So that's why internally they have a lot of conflicts. Well, I will simply suggest that um, there will not be one right answer. It would be good to explore these topics with a psychotherapist and the psychotherapist will help them to navigate through these parts. But I'd like to add on that sometimes these parts inside us could be wounded parts caused by injuries and traumas in the past. So if let's say a person went through a traumatic event at 11 years old, their 11-year-old self it is still there inside the unconscious mind. It is still at the back of the unconscious mind, still acting out, still wanting that. So being imprisoned in that pain, so even let's say the adult self is at 30 years old or 25 years old, for example, the 25 years old may find it a struggle or conflict with that 11-year-old self because the 11-year-old self wants to be hurt, wants to be healed, and therefore it's called wounded. But the challenge is that when a traumatic event happened at 11-year-old, let's say for example, at that point of time, maybe it was so tra dramatic and traumatic, the 11-year-old self cannot process it. So the, 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 the overall psyche, which is known as the identity, because of the pain and the hurt that 11-year-old self has experienced, the, the, the unconscious identity may reject that 11-year-old self and try to get rid of it by trying to mask it at the back because that self represents pain and suffering. So the, and when that happens, the identity will form a new self in the absence of this. And this identity is forced to grow up faster to become a part known as an inner adult. So this adult becomes, this child becomes an adult. And they, have, they, they start to pick out adult habits like smoking, drinking, drugs, or like adult behavior. They go and party or they go and uh, try to do dangerous stuff because they want to take control of their lives to show that they are in control. But yet, this part is being created from a place of injury and hurt. But, and then every time when the earlier self comes back, to, to come, once, once it comes back, the inner adult will try to block it out. So this is a part whereby the 25-year-old self may get very confused that on one hand, he or she wants love and appreciation and wants to be reconnected with their inner child. And on the second hand, they're being told that through their traumas, they need to stand up for themselves to protect themselves so that they won't get hurt again. And such cases are very, very common within every one of us. And we, every one of us have this wounded self, inner adult, and also the, um, the whole identity. And I will highly suggest that um, maybe to see a therapist is the best way to work with these issues and uh, so that they have more mindfulness and awareness in this area. And it's completely normal to have different parts within themselves. Yeah. And have ho I hope that this awareness will help um, your, uh, this conversation also. Yes, thank you.
Thank you for that. <laughs> what are your thoughts about uh, men and feelings? The men and? Men and, and, and their feelings. The men and his feelings. And, yes. Especially, uh, like, um, I mean men, like, like us. Okay. I, I think men in general, uh, comparing to women, we tend to lose out on emotional expressions because men has been hardwired to be a little bit more reserved in terms of their personal expressions of feelings. Of course, this could be reinforced by their fathers or their fatherly figures that they are being told to repress themselves. If let's say they, when they are young, they, when they fall down, I mean, of course, in certain cultures, especially from where I come from, when we see uh, young, when I was growing up, when I fell down, if I start crying, then my parents would say that, you know, as a boy, you cannot cry. You should be strong like a man. If you grow up, how could you be tough if you are always a crying baby? So this suggestions are actually very unhealthy for children when they're growing up, especially when they're boys, because they're being denied of owning their emotions. Crying is a perfectly normal emotion of sadness. This is how we process our emotions. When if we feel happy, we laugh, we smile. When we feel anxious, we start, we start to perspire, we start to shake and look around. When we, when we experience fear, we start to hide in a corner and we don't want to expose ourselves. So when we feel sad, it is okay to cry because it's a very natural tendency for us how our bodies release our emotions. So how is this related to men and their feelings? Because when this young child is being denied of their emotions when they're growing up, they will not have learned how to express their emotions when they are an adult. So they may be an adult at 25 years old, they may be an adult at 40 years old, at 60 years old, they do not know how to express their emotions or feelings. So what do they do instead? They have learned that it's okay not to cry, but it's okay to be angry. So they will start to result to alcoholism or dangerous activities. They get into fights or violence. It's okay because anger and violence is accepted. It is, it is displayed in our movies. It's displayed in our games. It's a, commonly, it's a common issue. It's okay. But the problem with that is that because many men have been denied their emotions. So I think it's very important for us to, to explore and allow these conversations to take place as men with their feelings. And the first step would be write down your feelings, how you really feel, and, and also learn how to ask for help. And learn how to reach out to say that, hey, I need help. Hey, I don't feel well. Can we have a conversation? And this is perfectly fine to do so. Yeah, I see that too. I, I see it's, it's very, very important topic. Um, to talk about um, and therefore I ask these questions not to take much of your time I know you are really really busy and I want to co congratulate you with your webinar that uh, that work with resilience right oh thank you uh, thanks for congratulating me because due to the um, COVID-19 pandemic situation uh, as, a, as a positive psychology practitioner at the School of Positive Psychology, we have been invited to um, run a lot of resilience seminars, especially this period, because of the uh, grief and the trauma that many people are experiencing. There is an increased tension 
in the world right now due to COVID-19, more than 2.7 million people are infected by COVID-19 physically, but the rest of the 9 billion people are infected by COVID-19 psychologically. So they, some of them, uh, they're experiencing boredom, lack of meaning, or they are, they're experiencing anticipatory grief of the world, not knowing what will happen next. When will life return back to normality? So resilience is, seems to be the way and the method to help people to go through this period. And resilience is a very important psychological resource we all have. And if I can spend some minutes to talk about this, which I think is very important, it would be resilience is not the same as a strong mind power. Resilience is not the same as strong mind power. Likewise, we cannot think ourselves out of depression. We cannot think ourselves to drive a car if a person has no, no skills in driving a car. Having strong mind power is not the same as having resilience. Resilience, why is the definition of resilience? Resilience is a process. It's a process that we continue to go through every single day. It's just like going to the gym uh, or you go and work out, you develop muscles in your body. But so when times of needs, when you need to carry a heavy item or when you need to be more athletic, your muscles are there to safeguard your body and to respond to the situation. So likewise, resilience are psychological muscles that we build. And we can only build them when we are in an okay state. We cannot build them when you're in a not okay state. Just like the metaphor of you can only repair your ship in at dry dock dry dock. You cannot repair the ship when you're out in the sea. So resilience is really very important. And, and in fact, when I run a webinar these few days, I'll be asking my audience, why is resilience to you? And many people think that it's related to mind power, but yet in fact, it is not. And some people will say that resilience is related to willpower. Yes, but willpower is not the answer because we lose willpower very, very fast. It's only for a burst of energy. Resilience is something that is much more sustainable across the four seasons of life. And um, uh, so what we did uh, at the school is because that we have been working on, we've been teaching resilience for 14 years. We train people to be certified, to become resilience trainers. So in return, they can train the communities. We, have, we use evidence-based methods so that they can re have resilience program on a daily basis. And resilience is also related to relationships, habits, connection, and also emotions, and all the topics that we talk about today. And, uh, oh yeah, I can talk about this right now. We have, uh, in order to teach resilience, we came up with a five days program and it's a five hours program. It's only five days. Every is called REACH, R-E-A-C-H, REACH. R stands for resilience. E stands for emotion management. A stands for actions, positive actions we can take. C stands for connections. And H stands for habits, exactly what you said today, Alma. And this REACH is a five-day program and it's available for people to come in and register. And if you have worked, more than, I don't know, put together 100 over hours or more, and there are 10 of us uh, psych psychologists, coaches, and trainers coming together to put this program so that the community can access to it. 
And if you want, if you, for those of you who are listening, if you want this information, you can go to www.tsppengage.com. Yeah, tsppengage.com. And then you can go in and look at the REACH program. Uh, it's at $99 Singapore dollars, and you will be able to assess five hours of practice, uh, which you can only do across five days or more. You cannot go in and do it everything at one shot. That's not the way to build resilience. But the end of five days, the end of the five hours over one week or two weeks, you will definitely know of the latest methods how to build your own resilience. And I highly recommend it. So it, it's a tool package that you can have with you. Yes. You can train it. Yeah. You can develop the muscles, yes. Yes, that's, that's great. So I, I recommend that too. I recommend that to everybody watching or listening. Go check that out. It could help you, especially in these corona times. Because staying home, thinking about what's happening, there's a lot of information in the media that could be overwhelming and that could affect your body also. Yeah, definitely. What do you see in, in society right now that is important to deal with other than resilience? Can you repeat the question again? Uh, what do you see in, in the society right now which is important to, to deal with? Mm, well, I will go back to resilience also because this is times of uncertainties and nobody can predict the future or the outcome. And the best way is to develop your, our psychological resources that is also, that will help us in terms of psychological readiness. When bad things are bound to happen, worse things may even happen more often than good things sometimes. So the only resource that we have is resilience and resilience through our personal development, our relationships, because this is the greatest resource that we have. And it is to show that throughout the history of mankind, all struggles, when people go through struggles and adversities, it seems to display that they have a strength of bounce back and that is displayed through resilience. So I would highly recommend that in order to get ready for the next thing in life, we have to work on our resilience building. Um, well, a big part of resilience building, it will impact our consciousness. It also impact how the way of course, it's related to our human consciousness. It's also related to our, lack of a better word, our spiritual development, not religious, but secular. And it's also related to how we play our roles in the world, you know. And many people are so interested in developing their own personal well-being. How about the well-being for society and the well-being for the world? And right now, it seems to suggest that if you develop your own resilience and well-being, you are also developing, taking time and energy to develop the well-being and resilience of the person next to you. And at the same time, this person next to you is also part of the community and part of the world. So it seems to suggest that everything is connected. And when we, when we focus on ourselves, we can have these abilities to focus on other people out there too. So I'll highly recommend that this is something that we are all connected. What we do to ourselves, we will do it for the same for the world. So let's pay attention to that type of well-being development. 
Okay, so, so, so it starts by ourselves, and by building ourselves, we can actually change everything around us. So change starts within. I would like to say that um, it's not just ourselves. Maybe I didn't uh, communicate clearly. I said that it's at the same time when we build ourselves, we are also building the world at the same time. Um, I think the most important thing is that we are not just doing it for ourselves, we are doing it for the world. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it makes sense because when we are part of the world, so everything we do to ourselves is affecting everything around us. Yes. Yes. Stephen, any last words? Um, I'm just very happy to be here and thanks for allowing me to share this with your audience. Um, I will, uh, for those of you who want to check out my um, podcast, it will be called Getting Naked with Happiness. Yes, you heard it right. It's called Getting Naked, but you do not get naked physically. You get naked emotionally and mentally. So the Getting Naked with Happiness is on Spotify, on Google, on iTunes. Do, do check it out where every week or every two weeks, I will interview um, people around the world who will come forth to share their personal resilience stories of how they bounce back from hardships and they build a life of well-being and resilience. And at the same time, for those of you who wants to uh, sh uh, reach out to me, you can reach out to me via Instagram or Facebook, hashtag getting naked with happiness. That's all. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me and sharing your time. I know it's late. It's around, what, 10.30 right now? No, 11.30? Yeah, th yeah I think it's around 11.30. <laughs> I'm not yes. very sure, too. At yes. night. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for your sharing of your time with us. I know it's really, you have not that much of it, and you're really busy. So thank you for being with me. It's, it's an honor for me to have you on the show. No, thank you, Ama, for having me on the show. Um, I hope that you know, this has been useful and I hope that whoever listening in will learn something new today. They, they definitely. I, I learned and I'm, I'm grateful for that. So thank you for, for being with me. For those of you that want to find uh, Stefan, you can find him on Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Get Naked with Happiness, Getting Naked with Happiness on the podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. Thank you.